0: This
2: episode contains disturbing content, including discussions of child abuse. Please take care while listening. Michelle Sutton was 15 years old when she enrolled at Summit Quest, a wilderness therapy program in St. George, Utah. Michelle was looking forward to the program. She thought she would spend a few months in nature, healing, that she would come home physically fit and with a newfound confidence. But in just over one week at Summit Quest, Michelle was dead.
3: You may have seen their ads in magazines, wilderness programs that say they can help troubled teenagers. A girl from Pleasanton named Michelle Sutton was one of those kids. Her parents thought a survival program would improve her self-esteem. But something went wrong out on that trail, deadly wrong. And now her parents are looking for answers.
2: Gail Palmer told the Suttons that Summit Quest was a place for teens to come get help, guidance, healing. So what happened? What was really going on in that program? Finding answers to that would be difficult. So much of what Gail said about Summit Quest wasn't true. For instance, Summit Quest had not been operating for two years, as Gail told Kathy. It was reported that this was actually a brand new program. Michelle's group was the first to be sent out into the desert.
3: This was uh, Gail Palmer's very first trick, the very first outing. But if you look at her brochure, and of course her on the back of it uh, shows her hugging her daughter. So it makes it look like that's from her program that this young person is running into the arms of the
2: mother. And so they, yeah, there's a lot of fraud involved, a lot of marketing fraud. And what about the parental testimonials printed on the Summit Quest brochure? The ones with parents raving about their experiences sending their kids through the program? Well, it turns out the photos of Gail hugging her daughter and the parental testimonials, they were all taken from a different wilderness therapy program. It was called Challenger and it was founded and operated by a man named Steve Cartesano.
4: Cardassano, I think, certainly is seen these days as a, a con artist of sorts. And when you start maximizing profits, then other stuff kind of falls by the wayside.
2: He's uh, really charismatic, can talk circles around you, big, smiling, like things are going to be okay. I know about this stuff.
4: So Steve was poor and woke up one day and found himself upper middle class, you know, and making a lot of money. And that can be very seductive to people.
2: Summit Quest and Challenger were closely associated because Gail worked at Challenger before branching out and starting her own program. Challenger, we can assume, is where Gail learned everything she knew about wilderness therapy. I mean, Summit Quest was a knockoff of Challenger. So I think some of those people from Challenger
5: went and worked at Summit Quest.
6: Gail Palmer left her managerial position with Challenger to start a program called Summit Quest. The company's very first outing ended in tragedy.
2: In the months after Michelle died, Kathy Sutton started to investigate Summit Quest. But it felt almost impossible to get information about what was going on with these kids out in the desert. So she started to learn about Challenger instead And in making this season, that is also where I started. It is by speaking to people who attended Challenger that I began to learn about what happened to Michelle Sutton, because Summit Quest was born out of Challenger. Without Challenger, Summit Quest never would have existed. It was a total fraud.
5: It was like we sent the kids there to be abused. It was just a scam.
2: From Cast Media, this is The Opportunist. This is Season 7, Episode 2. Gail Palmer, The Price of Admission. I'm Hannah Smith. Subscribe to Cast Plus to listen to all episodes of Season 7 of The Opportunist ad-free now at castmedia.com castplus. Follow, rate, and review The Opportunist on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen ad-free on Amazon Music.
0: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's.
1: Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer.
0: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Lucky Land Casino.
7: Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky?
2: The concept of wilderness therapy started to take hold in a variety of different forms in the 1970s. The idea was simple at first. Struggling young people might benefit from time in nature, away from modern distractions. Ben Dobbin worked for an early wilderness therapy program called Darrow Hall, which brought adjudicated youths on backpacking excursions, an alternative to juvenile detention.
4: Those of us in the field, we were young college kids who are interested in being out there with these kids, teaching them some skills, and hopefully I'm offering them a better chance at something in the future.
2: In the 1970s, Brigham Young University introduced their own wilderness therapy program for college students. It was started by Zeke Sanchez and Larry Dean Olson. Olson later went on to start the Anasazi Foundation, a successful and well-respected wilderness therapy program. Here he is speaking about the power of wilderness therapy.
4: People began to notice that the life-changing uh, occurrences were happening to them. And uh, people began to notice that uh, young people especially were help, being helped while they were with me. And so we did a little experimenting with students who had flunked out of the university, and it just grew from there.
2: The program at BYU consisted of sending students into nature for one to three weeks. Students were encouraged to reflect on their goals and to connect with themselves, They were also taught basic survival skills. BYU claimed that after students went through the program, they started to perform better at school and they were more pleasant at home. Steve Cardassano participated in the program while he was a student at BYU. He loved it so much, he started working for the program. But in 1975, tragedy struck. 24-year-old Kathleen Walton was a star
6: student who wanted a survival adventure. She died of dehydration on an outing
2: near Hanksville. Kathleen Walton died from dehydration, and BYU discovered something inescapable. The wilderness can be very dangerous. They shut down the wilderness therapy program. But Steve Cardassano was just getting started. In 1987, he founded his own spinoff program called Challenger. This is Steve Cardesano being interviewed by Sheila Hamilton, who at the time was a local journalist.
6: Colleagues said cardizano recognized the potential market of desperate parents dealing with drug and alcohol-addicted teenagers, and he wanted to market the program nationwide.
0: My mother was a heroin addict. My father was abusive. I've always had a gift working with kids. I can understand them. I've been there. I mean, they want to tell me about their problems. I'll say, okay, let's compare, pal. You want, you want to talk about a life, a rough life? You know, let's go through it. And I've been able to overcome that. So can you.
2: Steve Cardassano was the first person to take a program like this and market it on a national level. He made the
6: rounds on national talk shows and targeted upscale advertising to wealthy families in crisis. And with every one of those appearances, dozens of families from across the nation flooded Challenger's phone lines.
2: While the concept of wilderness therapy always included an aspect of challenge, Steve intensified it. He had a military background, and his program became more of a boot camp. It was authoritative, punishing. He started recruiting as many kids as he could. I've heard that at times, Challenger was bringing in between 50 and 60 kids every month, and for each kid, they were making about $15,000. But why would a punishing, authoritative program be so popular among parents? Well, this was the 1980s, a time in which there was a pervasive fear that young people in America were being perverted by rock music, Satanism, drugs, and sex. Utah is a conservative state, and there was a hunger for programs that claimed to correct the youth, to put them back on the right track for adulthood. Steve Cardassano had a no-nonsense, gruff attitude. It was all part of his marketing. His message to America was... Are you having trouble controlling your teenager? Well, send them to Challenger, because we can handle it. And the marketing worked. In its first year, Challenger reportedly made over $3 million. That's almost $7 million in 2023 dollars. But in reality, most parents didn't know what went on in the program. Challenger rarely turned away clients. And in this brand new, unregulated industry, they could present the program however they wanted to they started taking in all kinds of kids, many of whom would not do well in the program.
4: The uh, Challenger program, what they said they did was, uh, was confrontive and uh, strict and demanding, but the, the degree with which they took it, I don't think parents ever could have imagined.
2: And who was there making those calls to parents, signing up all of those teens? Well, it was Gail Palmer working in the admissions office. Gail Palmer was born Gail DeGraff in 1945. She grew up in Utah, Montana, and Oregon, and was raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. After graduating from high school in 1962, Gail attended Brigham Young for approximately three years. Shortly after, she married and had five children. When concerned parents called Challenger to ask about the program, it was Gail's voice that greeted them.
3: She worked in the office, but I think she also was the one speaking to parents and recruiting parents
2: uh, and sending their kids. She was relatable, a parent herself. She has been described to me as a natural saleswoman. She was able to convince desperate parents that the hefty price tag was nothing compared to how much Challenger would help their child. When Deborah McMahon called Challenger to see if the program could help her son John, she was hopeful. But she told me the program was not what it claimed to be, and John hasn't been the same since. It's, it's just sad. He's,
5: instead of Challenger helping him and Booth, instead of it being a um, springboard to the rest of his life, it's been a downhill slide.
2: Subscribe to Cast Plus to listen to all episodes of Season 7 of The Opportunist ad-free now at castmedia.com slash castplus. You can follow, rate, and review The Opportunist on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference, so thank you.
0: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block.
7: terms apply.
2: The first Challenger story I heard was actually from a mother, Deborah McMahon. She told me that her son, John, was smart and gentle. But as a teenager, he began struggling in school and hanging out with kids Deborah didn't approve of. Small acts of teenage rebellion, like Taking the car on a joyride without asking or starting to experiment with drugs had Deborah and her husband, John's stepdad, worried. They weren't sure how to help John.
5: He was just starting to get kind of wild. I mean, not inter- as interested in school.
2: But then Deborah heard about a wilderness therapy program called Challenger based in Escalante, Utah. It sounded interesting. Maybe it was just what John needed to rediscover himself and gain confidence at this pivotal moment in his adolescence.
5: My mother and my sister who live in Wenatchee saw it on Sally Jesse Raphael, and they recorded it and showed it to me, and it sounded good. And I also saw it in Sunset Magazine, the ads in Sunset Magazine. It It just sounded wonderful. There was... Counselors there that had doctorates, psychologists, And I said, well, I don't want him punished or anything. I just think he needs to shore up his ego and he just doesn't seem secure in himself. I want him to be able to make better decisions.
2: Challenger was promoted as a residential treatment facility with licensed therapists, nutritionists, outdoor experts, and doctors on board. But Deborah McMahon didn't just rely on what she was told by Challenger, she also did her research before signing up her son John to take part in the program.
5: So we called DSS in Utah and asked if there had been any claims or anything against Challenger. We also called Escalani Sheriff's Department and talked to the sheriffs there, which is where Challenger was based out of or near there. And they said they hadn't had any problem at all, that they thought it was a great organization.
2: It is true that at that time in early 1989, there were no complaints against Challenger. But that would change very soon. Deborah told me that she and her husband paid $15,500 to send their son John to Challenger. They spent another $2,000 on equipment for him to use while he was there out in the wilderness. John was expected to spend between two and three months in the program. Exactly how long he was there would be, at least partially, determined by his progress. We bought him a brand new camera, brand new hiking boots. Uh, We got him new clothes
5: for the whole thing. So he had a suitcase full of new clothes,
2: sunglasses, the whole thing. Soon, John was on his way to Utah.
5: We didn't know if we were doing the right thing, my husband and I, but we hoped it would be a wonderful experience for him.
2: But between the lines of shiny text advertising Challenger in the back of Sunset Magazine, there was another story, a much darker one.
5: If Challenger had been what they represented themselves to be, I do think the program would work. But
2: they weren't. John arrived at Challenger in the spring of 1989 with all of his new belongings. But they were immediately taken from him by the staff at Challenger. That's the last time he saw any of that. He never saw it
5: ever again, any of it. And he never came home with it either. Went downhill from there.
2: All of those supplies, they were meant to be tools to help John survive out in the desert for months. And Challenger took it all away. This was the first red flag, an indication of the cruelty to come. But Deborah didn't know any of this. She thought everything was going well, that John was having a great time.
5: We called about every day or every other day. We called every day to start with, and we were getting just wonderful reports. Oh, he's doing so good, he's so intelligent, he's just a great kid, he loves it. He's thinking about being a counselor, but I, wasn't getting any letters or anything, and they won't let you talk to him, because they said, well, he's out in the field.
2: Deborah had to sign paperwork giving Challenger temporary custody of John. And while he was there, Challenger controlled all the communication between them. Deborah had no way of knowing what was really going on. Her story was already eerily similar to Kathy Sutton's. Just like Deborah, Kathy also had multiple phone calls with Gail during the time that Michelle was at Summit Quest. And every call left Kathy with the impression that Michelle was thriving. But Michelle wasn't thriving, and neither was John. Perhaps this is a technique that Gail learned from her days at Challenger. Tell the parents whatever they want to hear. Deborah was excited to be reunited with her son, and she expected John to come home happy and confident. But then, just two days before John was set to graduate, Deborah received a phone call from state officials in Utah asking her if she'd heard from her son John. And I, I'm just shocked.
5: And I called up Challenger, and I said, what's going on? And they said, well, he's not here. And I went, what? Deborah's heart was racing. Where was John? And they said, yeah, he ran away, and he's on the way home. And I said, on the way home? What? Hitchhiking? You know,
2: what's, what's going on? Deborah was told that John had escaped Challenger, and then Challenger found him and kicked him out of the program, putting him on a plane by himself flying to Seattle-Tacoma Airport. More questions flooded Deborah's mind, but she had to end the call and rush to go pick up her son. This was 1989. They didn't have cell phones, and they lived over 150 miles away from the airport. John would be there waiting for her, alone.
5: Well, after I got picked John up, which was a rush, and he's scared to death, at Seattle, I said, "What is happening?" he was really skinny and boy he was really really skinny and he was sunburnt super super sunburnt really dehydrated just looked horrible
2: on the drive back to their little farming town in central washington john told his mother a terrifying story he was deprived of food of water john lost almost 43 pounds during his time at challenger
5: it it sounded unbelievable It certainly wouldn't be where you would want to send a child or a young adult.
2: Besides the physical hardships, John told his mother that the counselors played mean games on the kids, like this one. The counselors would throw a handful of raisins onto the ground and yell, Raisins on the path! Then they would watch and laugh as the starving kids scrambled and fought over the raisins. These are the people who were supposed to be helping John better himself. Instead, it seemed like they enjoyed torturing him.
5: Did he ever get any counseling at all? No, none at all. He was criticized. He was ridiculed. He said it was the worst thing he has ever experienced in his life. Wow. I mean, how did that make you feel when you learned about that? Oh, horrible. This? It was just you try your best to give what you can to your kid to be a better adult. And then and you certainly don't send them somewhere to be punished.
2: John declined to speak with me, but encouraged his mother, Deborah, to tell his story. The whole ordeal has left him with lasting trauma, which makes an interview difficult. But I wanted to speak with someone who was actually there, who attended Challenger, to hear a firsthand experience— and I was able to track down another attendee who shared their experience in Steve Cartisano's program.
3: My name is Tamira Letal, and my pronouns are they, them.
2: Tamira was what you might call a good kid. They did well in school. And they never even tried alcohol or drugs. I was doing sports every season. I was on
3: swim team and the track team and the varsity volleyball team, you know, getting
2: nearly straight A's. But their home life was a different story. Around age 14, they started having a lot of conflict with their parents. Swearing, screaming,
3: not talking to each other. And so at that point, somewhere in there, my parents got involved in the tough love movement and learned about how to physically control and assault your child without leaving marks.
2: The tough love movement was popularized in the 1970s by therapists Phyllis and David York. They promoted authoritative measures in order to control teenagers who were acting out. The idea was that these bad teens would only improve by being forced to submit to authority. Often this meant using tactics of fear and physical pain. Most modern psychologists agree that this movement was ineffective at best and often abusive. But it became a popular approach in the 1980s, and Tamira's parents started to use these authoritative techniques. This only caused more tension, more problems between them. CPS got called to their house multiple times. Eventually, this culminated in Tamira's parents sending them to Challenger. Anticipating that Tamira might resist going, their parents hired what is called a youth transport service. I was awakened by two, I
3: think, really big guys in my room. I remember it being light out. You know, it was early in June, so for some reason, the number
2: 530 in the morning is stuck in my head. Two large men came into Tamira's room while they were sleeping, picked them up, and carried them out of the house. It was a terrifying experience. And... I was in, like, underwear and a bra,
3: and I was, like, furious and scared and, you know, screaming and
2: trying to fight these guys. Tamira was put into a vehicle and taken to the airport, escorted all the way from their home in Washington state to Escalante, Utah. The whole experience was dehumanizing and scary, and Tamira wasn't even at Challenger yet.
3: So my first memory of Utah and Challenger is being in the pitch black around this giant bonfire being yelled at. And this guy yelling at us, saying, my name is Horsehair, and
2: making us introduce ourselves. The program started when the participants were driven 100 miles out into the remote desert in the middle of the night and dropped off at a huge bonfire. This audio is from a show called The Reporters, when journalist Krista Bradford visited Challenger. The man yelling is named Lance Jagger, but he went by the name Horsehair. He is one of the counselors who oversaw Tamira's stay in the program.
6: Dazed, they gather around the bonfire and soon learn to show respect to those who will teach them how to survive here. My name is Horsehair. For the next 63 days, you'll be under my care, my staff care. You understand? Yes, sir. I can't hear you! Yes, yes, sir. yes, sir! The so-called counselors are not trained child therapists. They are survivalists who seem to revel in their power to intimidate.
0: I have a phrase that I use. It's, is, I love you till it hurts you.
2: I love you till it hurts you. That was Lance Jagger, the field director at Challenger, the one in charge of running the program On the Ground. I spoke with Lance on the phone. He declined to do a recorded interview, but he told me that this line was taken out of context. He said his intention was always to create a safe environment where the kids could face adversity and come out the other side stronger. He also said the program got to be too large for him to keep tabs on all the counselors. And he later found out that there were instances of abuse occurring. Just like Steve Cartesano, Lance also had a military background, but no training or experience in therapy. In fact, there were no therapists in sight or doctors. And so are you carrying like like as if you were backpacking, do you have like your tent and everything on your in your pack?
3: No, we didn't get a tent. We got uh, a small tarp. And we got one wool blanket and we got a strap and some string and we had to roll it all up and make it into a backpack. And yeah, there was no sort of padding, no sort of, we were totally exposed to um, the open air. There was no protection. They didn't give us sunscreen. They didn't give us hygiene products. We didn't have toothbrush. We didn't have toothpaste. We didn't have floss. Um, we didn't have um, tampons or pads. If we had to take a shit, they gave us one square of toilet paper and said, here you go. We didn't have changes
2: of clothes. It only got worse from there. The counselors took the kids on long, arduous hikes from 8 to 15 miles long, most days, and forced them to carry six-gallon cans of water. Probably the most unbelievable thing that Tamira told me about their time at Challenger was that for the first three days, they were given zero food, They
3: were like, you want food, you can find food. You can eat the prickly pear cactus and you can build traps and catch mice. Here's how you make a trap. And here's how you, then they taught us how to make a fire. And if you can't make a fire, then you can't eat either. And that continued through the whole thing.
2: After the first three days, they were given food, mostly rice and lentils and some oatmeal, a little bit of brown sugar. One of the participants later calculated that it worked out to be about 800 calories per day per kid. Making the fire ended up being a pretty big deal. They had to do it with a bow drill, basically rubbing sticks together. And if you couldn't get the hang of it, then essentially you went hungry because you couldn't cook your rice and lentils. You couldn't use somebody else's fire. So
3: people went hungry all the time because they could get a fire started. And people blew through their food too fast and had days where they didn't get any food. And we're hungry all, all the time. We're hiking all day. We get 800 calories of food, rice, lentils, uncooked half the time, or like half cooked because you didn't get enough time to get them cooked.
0: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw.
7: Terms apply.
2: The cost of admission, of enrolling at Challenger, was high. But the overhead cost of running the program was low. There was no lodging, there was very little food, and almost no outdoor gear provided to the kids in the program. The counselors were often getting paid minimum wage. Most of the tuition was going straight into Steve Cartesano's pocket. The reasons for why someone might be sent to Challenger varied wildly. It's been described to me as a one-size-fits-all approach. It didn't seem to matter what your teenager was struggling with. Challenger claimed they could help. The more kids they could enroll, the more money came in. I spoke with Philip about this. He attended Challenger in 1990, the same time as Tamira.
7: I think that um, that was part of the marketing that eventually drew, you know, even my folks into sending me to this thing, was that, uh, you know, they sold it like it was a fix, and they didn't sell it like it was a fix for anything specific.
2: I can't help but wonder if Gail Palmer was taking note as she witnessed desperate parents writing checks to send their children to Challenger, because it was very clear that Steve Cardesano was making money. He didn't try to hide it. His attorney, Charlie Broffman, remembers visiting Steve at his home in Provo, Utah.
4: It was a beautiful community, and he lived in a beautiful home, beautifully decorated. He was a flamboyant guy, you know, he he was making a lot of money at the time. And when I say flamboyant, you know, he had his private helicopter and he had his private plane and he lived in his beautiful home in Provo. And, you know, he certainly was showing the trappings of success.
2: Steve once bragged to a reporter that parents who wanted to send their kids to Challenger would go so far as to take out a second mortgage on their home so they could afford it.
4: You know, he was charging parents fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars 16000 He had, you know, 50, 60 kids coming in every month. I mean, he was doing okay, you know, and living that well, living well too. I mean, think about it. You're not providing like housing. You are providing staff, but you're not providing transport. You're not providing any of those things.
2: And while Steve Cardassano was living the high life, the kids at Challenger were suffering from the effects of starvation, spending all day in the hot sun on grueling hikes. And this was just the tip of the iceberg. These people were waking us up, screaming at us in the middle of the night,
3: throwing our shit all over the place, force marching us, forcing us to chug water, telling us we were manipulative. I remember there was a situation. I don't even know what we did, but they were like, fine, you people are just going to sit here. And they made us sit on the ground in the sun with no shelter for four hours straight. They're like, you're just going to sit there. And I just remember, like,
2: flies buzzing around. To this day, I can't deal with flies buzzing around. The kids in the program were discouraged from speaking to one another, likely another effort by Challenger to prevent any pushback. But Tamira knew they would be in the program for 63 days, at least. It's a long time to go without any social connection. So slowly, cautiously, Tamira forged a friendship with Philip.
7: One of the things that we would do is talk about food. Everybody wanted peanut butter, everybody wanted Snickers bars. Trust me, whenever you're eating rice and lentils for an entire summer, you come up with some of the most ungodly concoctions that you want to eat.
2: The counselors also threatened to punish them if they complained or refused to hike. They would have their blankets taken away from them at night or be made to carry heavy rocks on the hikes. A common threat, one of the worst ones, was that they would be made to stay longer in the program. Both Philip and Tamira recalled one particularly troubling memory of a girl named Karen, who dared to defy the counselors.
7: They had her on a leash, not like an actual leash, but they had like taken like a pack cord and put it around her neck as like a lead, um, because she was, you know, she just outright refused to to do anything
3: and they were leading her around on a leash, like she had a rope around her neck because she wouldn't do what they wanted. So they just dragged her and we were like, what the hell is going on?
2: I asked Tamira if they ever thought about running away, trying to escape, if even just to find some food.
3: I think I was too scared to run. You know, I was pretty cowed by the experience and very scared and just wanted to survive and get away.
2: Tamira stayed in the program for 83 days. They were told at one point that they would have to repeat part of the program instead of progressing to the next section, and they were not given a reason why.
3: I remember just this sense of horror, of like, oh my God, I'm never gonna get out of here. I'm gonna be stuck in this place my whole life. It was like, it's the worst moment of that whole experience for me, is like that that real sense of, I'm I'm trapped. There is nobody gonna come save me.
2: Tamira told me that being at Challenger felt like a life-or-death situation. So it wasn't surprising to them years later when they finally heard about Michelle Sutton's death. Tamira said it felt like anyone could have died out there. News of the abuse at Challenger was slowly starting to make its way into the outside world. It
6: was just, it was hell, you know, it was just complete hell. Everyone was... Stephanie Hook says she survived, but just barely. She sued Challenger for personal injuries and settled out of court, but she still has scars from the program.
2: A lot of, well, at first it was just like a lot of tying me
6: up and, you know, pushing me Wait a minute, wait a minute, tying you up?
2: In June of 1989, a teenage girl named Stephanie Hook went to the authorities saying she had been abused by counselors at Challenger. She alleged that they dragged her over rocks and filled her mouth with sand when she asked for water. After an investigation into Challenger, the program was charged with misdemeanor child abuse. It turns out Deborah's son John witnessed Stephanie's abuse and Steve Cardasano feared that John would be called as a witness. So Challenger sent him home abruptly. Shortly after John returned home, journalist Krista Bradford interviewed Steve Cardassano for a show called The Reporters, and she questioned him about the harsh conditions at Challenger. At the time of the interview, Steve was awaiting trial for the child abuse charge. Not only that, but he had been sued by a different Challenger attendee who claimed the program violated her constitutional rights. Despite all of that, Steve didn't seem to have any regrets for how children were being treated in his program.
0: Well, we're
4: not brainwashing. What we're doing is we are breaking down the facades. As you see, these kids come in with all sorts of little ways of trying to manipulate. And they're full of a lot of anger and vinegar. So we take them out there and physically stress them out. And it breaks down the facades and we get down to the heart.
2: Ultimately, the child abuse charge was dropped. All of the witnesses, including John, had been sent back home, out of state, And the state of Utah deemed that it would be too expensive to fly everyone back. I think it's important to note that at this time, there were no regulations in place for wilderness therapy programs in Utah. Challenger continued to operate. John returned home in many ways worse off than when he left. And Deborah became determined to shine a light on what Challenger really was, a cash grab that preyed on parents who weren't sure where else to turn to help their children. She was told that there was nothing legally she could do except file a civil lawsuit against Steve Cartesano, so that's what she did. I said, I want
5: to shut him down. He says, We well, can't do that. All you can do is sue for your son, and if enough people sue for their own child, then it'll shut him down.
2: Debra knew that because Challenger was insured, they wouldn't have to spend their own money to fight her in court, and any settlement that she won would not be paid out by Challenger, but by their insurance company. But her hope was that creating a history of litigation would make it more difficult for Challenger to find and afford insurance.
5: So you said that you won the lawsuit, and do you feel comfortable disclosing how much money you got from that? 33,000. I mean, that was John's, I didn't get any. I paid all the expenses of fighting it. The attorney took, what, 17000
2: And to put it in context, you know, someone might think, oh, 33000 that's pretty good. Oh no, huh?
5: that, that's nothing. And it took probably two years to
2: fight it. Deborah told me that even today, John still deals with repercussions from his traumatic experience at Challenger.
5: He was quite paranoid. I, I want to say shaky, but he didn't really tremble. He slept with his light on. I don't think he trusted us anymore. He just—he's just different. He's quiet now. It's thirty-some odd years later. He's a hermit. I don't think he trusts anybody anymore. If Challenger had been what it said it was going to be and not a fraud, I think it probably would have helped. But it was totally fraudulent.
2: Steve Cardesano was making millions, operating in a largely unregulated industry. And Gail Palmer saw that. But she also saw that he was brash, incendiary, that he loved to go on interviews and hear himself talk, that he leaned into the controversy. And now he was paying the price. Lawsuits were piling up. I think Gail saw an opportunity, an opening in the field. Challenger was starting to get a bad reputation. And maybe Gail thought she could slip in and start a new organization, something she could market as a little softer, less militaristic, Because that is certainly how she sold the program when Kathy Sutton called her, looking for the right fit for her daughter, Michelle. Maybe there's no way to know, but what do you think Gail's motivation was in creating Summit Quest?
4: Absolutely, no doubt. It was the money because she saw Challenger getting hands over fist money and uh, she wanted it for herself but I know that she also wanted to make Summit Quest a better program than Challenger. You know, oh, Gail, she wants to make a better program, but I know that she wants the money too.
2: After Michelle's death, Kathy found herself on a journey she never wanted to take. She was learning about kids like John, who suffered at the hands of the counselors in their wilderness therapy programs. As she unraveled the suspicious circumstances around her own daughter's death, Kathy would learn that the dark side of wilderness therapy expanded far beyond her own story, or Deborah's. They were just scratching the surface. Because in the summer of 1990, Michelle was the first teenager to die in a wilderness therapy program. But she wouldn't be the last. That's next time on The Opportunist.
3: No, there was none of this medical training, physical checkup. There was no care about our wellness. While I was there, they killed a girl in another group because they didn't give her water. She said, I'm thirsty. And they said, you're being manipulative.
2: The Opportunist is a cast original podcast. It's produced by me, Hannah Smith, along with Natalie Gregory, Pesha Eaton, and Sarah Dalgleish. Colin Thompson is our executive producer. Anton Doty is our editor and music editor. The show is mixed and mastered by Matt Sewell. The Opportunist show cover art is by Joel Hassemeyer. Our theme song is Waltz for Zachariah by the album Sholete. Do you have a suggestion for the show and Opportunist that you'd like to hear us cover? You can email us at theopportunist at castmedia.com. That's cast with a K. Subscribe to Cast Plus to listen ad-free with bonus episodes at castmedia.com slash castplus. Follow, rate, and review The Opportunist on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen ad-free on Amazon Music.
0: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block because there are drinks then there are drinks from mcdonald's
1: mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for a dollar 49 perfect with our classic fries price and participation may vary cannot be combined with any other offer
0: ba-da-ba-ba-ba lucky
7: land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in
3: line
1: at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office.